<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, if not already, a whole library of books will eventually be published about how Donald Trump managed to beat Hillary Clinton in 2016. Indeed, there were many factors in his surprising win, but one of the big ones was he convinced evangelical voters that despite all of his flaws, they should vote for him because he promised to appoint far-right anti-abortion justices to the Supreme Court. And on that promise, Donald Trump has delivered first by appointing Neil Gorsuch, who didn't change the court that much since he merely replaced Antonin Scalia, but then by appointing Brett Kavanaugh, who changed the balance of the court and caused it to tilt even farther to the right by replacing swing vote Anthony Kennedy. How did Kavanaugh get to the court? How did he survive his contentious confirmation hearing against accuser Christine Blasey Ford? And what did we learn about him from his first year on the court? Washington Post columnist Ruth Marcus tells it all in her powerful new book just published, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover of the Supreme Court. I sat down with Ruth Marcus in her office at the downtown headquarters of the Washington Post. Ruth Marcus, it's nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to be here well, at the Washington for Post. To my hood. That's yeah. right. <laughs> So we are now in, uh, just finished reading uh, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Great job. We are now one year in. Uh, has Brett Kavanaugh proven to be as bad as some of us feared? What do you think? Um, well, he has not proven to be as conservative as President Trump's first choice, Neil Gorsuch. We'll, learn, we'll know a lot more this coming June than we do right now, because this is going to be the term that way more than last term is going to tell us about the shape of this court. It's not going to tell us whether or not it's a conservative court, because that's just not up for discussion. Mm -hmm. This is a conservative court. It's just a question of how conservative, how muscularly conservative, how eager this court is going to be to put some of those conservative views into practice either stretching precedent, precedents or overturning precedents. What are those? some of those big cases coming up in June that you're looking at? Well, it's actually really amazing how many different types of cases there are. There's a big abortion case that's coming up. It's a fascinating case because it is almost identical to one that was decided five to four by the Supreme Court a few years ago with Justice Kennedy, who obviously Justice Kavanaugh replaced, providing the fifth vote. So if uh, the fifth vote to overturn an abortion restriction. The court took this case, involves an almost identical statute, this one from Louisiana. If the court flips, that will tell us something about where this new court is heading. But wait, that's not all. Mm. There is a gun case at the court that they might dismiss because uh, it's moot. 
but there is a case involving the scope of employment protections for gay, lesbian, and transgender workers. There's a case about DACA, the Dreamers program, and the court just on Friday took a, case, took a set of cases that involve whether the president has to respond or his agents have to respond to subpoenas seeking his financial and tax records. So it is going to it is shaping up to be a potentially blockbuster term. So the perfect storm. Yeah. Right? So in the book, you talk about the fact that growing up, um, even through college, I believe, Kavanaugh had a reputation for being a I mean, he has a drinking problem. But a nice guy, a guy who liked to get along with everybody, and everybody liked him, and he was into sports and everything, and a guy who getting people together and everything. And then he took a sharp turn to the right, maybe when he went to work with Ken Starr. Is it possible that he comes back to the old, I want everybody to like me, Kavanaugh? Um, sure, because um, Justice Kavanaugh, and the best way to understand him, perhaps, is to compare and contrast him with Justice Kennedy, who obviously had a similarly difficult experience during his confirmation process. For Justice Kennedy, I think the experience of that confirmation process really pushed him even further to the right than it w he would have been otherwise. I think it embittered him. We could see the anger that he displayed there and, and afterwards in some of his um, personal writings in his mm -hmm. autobiography. Justice Kavanaugh is a different type of person, and there is a he has always um, wanted to be, he's been conservative for quite a while, but as a conservative, he's also very much enjoyed being part of the legal establishment. He's a guy who enjoyed teaching at Harvard Law School and Yale Law School, wants to be accepted by that community, right. which uh, much of which recoiled during his confirmation hearings. And so I think that th though there's a possibility that he will simply... Um, pick that conservative team and be on it even more fiercely than he might have been otherwise. He's telling his friends that he wants to be the same justice he would have been had none of this happened. And I think that if you look at the cases from last term, you see him much closer to the chief justice, John Roberts, who, make no doubt, is a conservative justice, but he is a much less fiercely and aggressively conservative justice than Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch at that further end of the conservative spectrum. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, nomination process, the confirmation process, and the vote. Uh, and you go through all of those in great detail in the book. In terms of the nomination, you, can, you cannot call Brett Kavanaugh an accidental justice. You point out this was his goal, like, from the time he was in diapers, and he really worked hard at it in jobs that he took and moves that he made all the way through. Right? I, I'm not sure about diapers, but certainly <laughs> um, certainly from uh, shortly after graduating from law school, he talked about his desire to become a judge, and he also talked reasonably openly about his desire to be on the Supreme Court someday. But it's interesting because he is, in a sense, an accidental justice, and I'm going to tell you this story pretty quickly. But uh, Brett Kavanaugh was clerking uh, in Delaware for a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, a perfectly mainstream Republican mm -hmm. judge. And he was on his way to work at Williams & Connolly, which is a very prestigious and well-regarded law firm here in Washington, um, ironically the law firm that represented Bill and Hillary Clinton during um, the last <laughs> impeachment and the Whitewater investigation. That's Washington. Um, and it's a very small world. Uh, 
But one day while he's clerking, Brett Kavanaugh, a year out of law school, gets a call from a Yale Law School professor who says, a judge on the Ninth Circuit, a judge your listeners may have heard of, named Alex Kaczynski, he later had to quit over his own sexual misconduct issues. Um, Kaczynski has a sudden opening in his chambers, a guy named Alex Azar, who may sound familiar because he's now the Secretary of Health and Human <laughs> Services, has suddenly quit after six weeks. Would you like to clerk for him? And Brett Kavanaugh takes less than 24 hours to consider this and says, heck yes, because Judge Kaczynski is a feeder judge. That helps him get his clerkship for Justice Kennedy, without which I don't think we would have Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court today. So in that sense, so, accidental. In that sense, accidental. But again, he saw that as a stepping stone. He knew what he was doing. That got him to, to Kennedy as a clerk. Then he goes for Ken Starr. He ends up a little bit of private practice into the White House. He marries George Bush's secretary. <laughs> he does. And, you know, the book is called Supreme Ambition, not for one reason, but for two reasons. One is that it reflects this ambition of Justice Kavanaugh's that you've been discussing. It also reflects the ambition of the conservative movement mm -hmm. after 30 difficult years to finally cement a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. But it's interesting that you mentioned President Bush because he also played as with Justice Kennedy, a critical role in Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. At the first part of it, he was the biggest albatross around Judge Kav then Judge Kavanaugh's neck. Brett Kavanaugh did not believe he was going to be selected for the job because he was such a bushy, as you said, mm -hmm. not just nominated by him, not just worked for him, but literally married the president's secretary, who the Bushes viewed as an almost third daughter. Uh, but once he was, and that did not endear him, to put it mildly, to Wait. President Trump. But once he was nominated, President Trump called President Bush, very rare for them to speak to each other, said, I picked your guy. And President Bush, as Justice Kennedy did earlier, went to bat for Brett Kavanaugh and made critical phone calls to senators to help him get across that finish line. And at the final part of his campaign, uh, was, I guess, in that when the first list Donald Trump promised, you give me a list, I will appoint somebody who's on that list. Brett Kavanaugh's name was not on the original list, but he didn't take no for an answer, right, with well, the help of some very people close to Trump? Brett Kavanaugh's name was, interestingly, not on three lists during the campaign. Three lists. <laughs> His name was not on the original list that Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society gave to Donald Trump, um, then-candidate Trump, uh, suggesting potential mm -hmm. nominees. He was not on the first list that pr candidate Trump issued in the May of uh, the election year, and he was not on the second list that he issued in the fall of the election year. This didn't seem like it was a big deal when, as everybody well understood, Donald Trump was never going to be president. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, but it was a problem for Brett Kavanaugh and his ambitions when Donald Trump was elected. And he had a twofold problem. He had a Bush problem with President Trump mm -hmm. because he was a Bushy. And he had a conservative problem with Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society and some of the other conservatives who were worried in part because of a ruling in which then Judge Kavanaugh failed to overturn the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. They were worried that he was not going to be conservative enough. And so that was a fascinating moment where 
a bunch of conservatives, particularly social conservatives, tried to take down then-Judge Kavanaugh as a nominee before he was ultimately selected. Right. Uh, so he finally he gets on the list. And then you talk about, and I think you're the first one to report this, that Justice Kennedy personally really got involved lobbying for the president directly, right? He Tell did. us about that. Well, uh, as I said, Brett Kavanaugh had this problem. The president promised to pick only from his list, and his name was not on it. Uh, and the White House at this time very much had its eye on Justice Kennedy as the most likely justice to depart. And President Trump loved the adulation he got picking Justice Gorsuch. It was really at a very rocky time in his presidency. When has there not been a rocky time in his presidency? Uh, this was his uh, one of his uh, crowning achievements, and he wanted the chance to do it again. And so when Justice Kennedy was at the White House in the spring of 2017 swearing in Justice Gorsuch, he asked for some time with the president. And during that meeting, which was not publicized, as you say, which I report for the first time in this book, he made the point, hey, you've got this list. There's a name missing from it. You might want to take a look at my clerk, Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh was Justice Kennedy's favorite clerk. And after that, President Trump started asking, hey, what about this guy Kavanaugh? Hey, how come nobody told me he went to Yale Law School and Yale College? Hey, how come nobody told me he worked for Ken Starr? He really liked the working for Ken Starr part because he liked somebody who had gone up against the Clintons. And lo and behold, within a few months after that meeting, the president issues a new and revised list, <laughs> and it has the name of one Brett Kavanaugh on it. Uh, so to borrow a phrase from today's news, was this a quid pro quo? I, I think it's a much more subtle situation than that. <laughs> um, but as we, but I think that it was absolutely clear that both uh, President Trump and his White House counsel, Don McGahn, understood that Justice Kennedy was inclined to leave. Justice Kennedy it w was 80. He's a very loyal Republican. He, President Trump is not his kind of Republican, but he was not going to leave with a, he wanted to be replaced by a Republican president, and this was the one that he had. And the Trump administration was going to do whatever it took to get Justice Kennedy comfortable with the notion of leaving, and that included getting Brett Kavanaugh onto that list. So explicit quid pro quo, I don't think so. Everybody understood what was going on here. I, fairer presumption. Even with Kennedy's role, it's also very clear that the Federalist Society really wields a lot of power when it comes to judicial nominations under a Republican president, right? It's uh, almost a monopoly they've got. They How did they get there? Well, it's a fascinating story because uh, the Federalist Society was formed in 1982 when we don't even remember the notion of looking at the Constitution through the lens of the original intent of the framers was looked at as a kind of wacky way to do constitutional interpretation, and legal conservatives were not particularly welcome or popular or abundant, to say the least on law school campuses. Some of that may be true today. And so it was almost a kind of um, self-help support group mm -hmm. that got created. But it turned into this incredibly powerful force in uh, nurturing and identifying and growing and then in vetting young conservative lawyers first to go into uh, Republican administrations when a Republican president was in power 
then to grow up on the lower federal courts, and then to be potentially plucked to be Supreme Court justices. That was true when Brett Kavanaugh and Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society worked together on judicial nominations during the George W. Bush administration, but it was increasingly true, it is increasingly true in this administration, in the Trump administration, because this president, particularly when he was still candidate Trump, was so distrusted by social conservatives, by evangelicals, that he did this thing that no president had done before in not just creating this shortlist, but making it public. That helped him get over the edge with conservatives. I don't think that Mm -hmm. he, and he doesn't think, Rich McConnell doesn't think, that he would have been elected president had it not been for that Scalia vacancy and for the development of the list. And and particularly with the evangelical community. Especially. Right. Now, we get to the nomination process, and um, as we recall, it was only a year or so ago. It, having gotten on the list and having nom- been nominated, it, it, with the Republicans in control of the Senate, it maybe a slam dunk is too hard of a word, but it looked like it was going to be happen, right, until Christine Blasey Ford. How did her story come about? It wasn't uh, easy, right? Right. It was it was a very long story. Let me just say one sentence or two about the slam dunk situation. It was a 51-49 Senate. There so, was yeah. not a lot of leeway. And Don McGahn's argument for Brett Kavanaugh was that uh, this was going to be the easy – I mean, this is ironic now, right? This was going to yeah. be the easiest one to get done. <laughs> um, but Christine Blasey Ford um, comes up. She tries desperately to – reach her local congresswoman, Anna Eshoo, and then to reach her senator, even before he is nominated. And they are a little bit slow in getting back to her. She has this story, but she also does has this extraordinarily naive belief that if she just does what she called her civic duty and privately told senators what had happened, surely they wouldn't want to go forward with this. But she... That is not the Washington that we no. live in today, to say the least. And right. so so she spent the whole summer just agonizing, and I describe her agonies in this book, about whether or not to come forward, ultimately decides that she's not willing to come forward, and then that choice is taken from her. Right, uh, because um, the, the letter that she had written to Diane Feinstein leaked. Uh, and Diane, did Diane Feinstein do the wrong thing by sitting on that letter, not turning it over to the chairman, not turning it over to other members of the committee? Um, I think she was in an exquisitely difficult position because as because if you have been the victim or you say you have been the victim of a sexual assault, it should be your decision whether or not to come forward. And Diane Feinstein was trying to be importantly respectful of Christine Blasey Ford's privacy in that situation and also believed as this was progressing that Christine Blasey Ford would ultimately make the decision to come forward. But where I think Senator Feinstein really made a grievous error was in two ways. First, to not recognize it at the point when even in July, late July, when Christine Blasey Ford finally reached her, not to realize how many people she had already told about this, Christine Ford had told about it, and therefore how inevitable it was that something mm-hmm. this explosive was going, was going to come out. And second, Senator Feinstein took it on herself to make this decision about how to handle the letter. It's not just that she didn't go to Senator Grassley, then the chairman of the committee, because things are pretty poisonous here in Washington, and there are 
are reasonable arguments against that. She didn't go to her own leadership and say, I have a problem here, but it's a problem that doesn't just affect me. It affects all of us. There are ex-Democratic senators right now who would very much like to wring Senator Feinstein's neck because mm. they believe that her decision to about how to handle this really helped to cost them their seats. Once Christine Blasey Ford came forward, did she get a fair shake? Did she get a fair shot to make her case? Well, that's an interesting way to put the question, and I guess the answer is compared to what? I think um, in some ways she got a better, fairer, more um, respectful hearing than Anita, Anita Hill, Hill did because I was sitting there during the Anita Hill hearings, and I have to say that all-male Judiciary Committee and the absolute failure of many of those senators to understand the realities of sexual harassment was a much worse circumstance than anything um, Christine Blasey Ford faced, and also the failure, honestly, of Democratic senators with Anita Hill to stand up for her. Uh, at the same time, I think more broadly, the FBI investigation was a colossal failure. Among other, among the people it didn't, the FBI didn't interview are Christine Blasey Ford and Justice Kavanaugh. And one would think if you want to be, if you say there should be an FBI investigation, uh, one obvious thing would be to interview. And yes, the committee interviewed her, but there is a difference between what senators can do and what the FBI can do. You make that point that the FBI investigation was what, a week long, directed? Less than that. Less than that. Uh, under total direction of the White House counsel who said, here's who you can talk to, here's who you right. can't. The White, House, so, the White House did not want to have this FBI investigation. It only had the FBI investigation because the few Republican senators who were capable of holding it up because of that slim margin, Senator Flake, Senator Murkowski, Senator Collins, insisted on an FBI investigation. And just quite bluntly, this was not a hunt for the truth. It was a hunt for 50 votes. And the White House was going to interview only those people it was required to interview in order to get those 50 votes. And there were very um, important people that it left on the table. So before we get to the votes, uh, a couple of other people that come up. Deborah Ramirez, she didn't get a lot of attention, did she? She did not. She was Similar accusation. A, a similar accusation. Deborah Ramirez is a Yale classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's. And she recalled, in a st and it was published in a story in the New Yorker, uh, right after the Christine Blasey, a week after the Christine Blasey Ford story erupted, she recalled an incident in which Brett Kavanaugh had essentially exposed himself to her in a party in a dorm room freshman year. Uh, she was interviewed, but there were there was another person named Max Steyer who recalled a similar incident involving a second woman, second a second woman. woman who, I should say, did not remember this incident herself. She was uh, supposedly quite inebriated at the time, told friends that she didn't remember <laughs> it happening. Um, but Max Steyer, well-known person in town, runs a bipartisan think tank, did not want to come forward because he thought it would destroy his think tank, but tried desperately to get his information to the FBI, to get his information to Republican senators. He, he, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, tried to help him get his information to these Republican senators, and he was not interviewed. And his story, if correct, would have corroborated and supported Deborah Ramirez's story, which would have in turn 
supported and corroborated Christine Blasey Ford's story. But, you and, might think you'd want to know what he had to say, but that wasn't the interest, as I say. Nope. And then finally, parachuting in from nowhere is Michael Avenatti. Yeah, with yes. this crazy story Sigh. about, yes, Julie Swetnick, no evidence behind it. Might have been true, but no evidence behind it. Uh, you, you say, either yourself or quoting someone in the book, if you want to blame anybody for Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court, blame Michael Avenatti. Well, um, a guy named Mike Davis, who a uh, fascinating character, he's he was Chuck Grassley's chief nominations counsel. He mounted this rogue operation to deny Kavanaugh the nomination before he was nominated. But once he was nominated, became Kavanaugh's most fierce warrior. And he described, I think correctly, Michael Avenatti as manna from heaven. Because much as Steyer could have corroborated, I, I think when Michael Avenatti came in with a set of allegations from Julie Swetnick that were just out, rather outlandish and not credible on their face, that just had this trickle-down discrediting effect on the whole thing and really started to uh, help turn the tables on, on the whole debate. And shocking that Michael Avenatti might have been more interested in publicity for himself than helping uh, the cause. Our guest is Ruth Marcus, columnist for The Washington Post and author of the new book, power, powerful new book, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Uh, a quick break, and we'll get to the vote in the committee. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters. You know, nobody deserves our thanks more than the firefighters, those local firefighters at every one of the fire departments in our neighborhoods. We count on them, and they never let us down. Over 320,000 professional firefighters and paramedics across the United States and Canada under the leadership of President Harold Sheetberger. They're on the front lines protecting American families every day, for which we are very grateful, and we also thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ruth, welcome back. Okay, let's, so uh, coming into the vote, we first have to deal with Brett Kavanaugh responding to Christine Blasey Ford on September 27, 2018, with a performance unlike we've seen by any Supreme Court nominee or maybe any Senate witness ever. It was quite— Did that almost derail his entire nomination? Well, it was so—it was a fascinating moment. Um, First, I might slightly disagree that it was a performance like we've never seen before Uh because I felt very much at that moment— like I was having deja vu. Uh, I had seen Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas now, have a similarly volcanic moment yeah. where he talked about the assault on the his character as a high-tech lynching. And actually, similarly to Justice Kavanaugh, somewhat turned around some of the atmosphere in the room. So I thought uh, here we go again, I huh? here to some extent here we go again I did not ever think I was going to live through a set a day that with two um, witnesses who were that powerful that diametrically opposed in their uh, descriptions of what had gone on and where there was such angry ferocity from the would-be justice the nominee denying it uh, at the same time just setting the stage for that day, September 27th, Christine Blasey Ford tes- testifies. Her, her, She is such an uncoached witness and so worried about testifying. She almost doesn't really understand that it's going to be nationally televised. I know that sounds crazy, but she just didn't really take that in until she was right there. Her lawyers weren't sure she was going to go through with it. She turns out to deliver incredible incredibly powerful testimony, so powerful that at their lunch that day, when she concludes the mood among Republican senators is R.I.P. Brett Kavanaugh, goose is mm. cooked, we're going to mm-hmm. have to do something about this. It's so bad that Don McGahn, the White House counsel, uh, is refusing to take phone calls from his boss, the president of the United States, because he's convinced rightly or wrongly, that Trump is prepared to pull the nomination to the point where his deputy says to him, the president's trying to reach you. You have to take his call. And McGahn says to her, I don't talk to quitters. So Brett Kavanaugh needs, as Don McGahn tells him, to reset that room. And he has written the day before a prepared statement that includes all of the partisanship that we heard from him that afternoon. So that was not Mm -hmm. off the cuff. That was prepared remarks. And that's one place in which it's very different from what Justice Thomas did, because Justice Thomas complained about the assault on his character, and he talked about it in not very subtle racial terms 
uh, when he used the word lynching. But he did not attack the Democratic senators. He did not talk about this as a partisan hit job. He did not go after individual senators in that challenging way that Justice Kavanaugh did. And I have to say, watching it, I thought, well, this has to be the end. He cannot be he has disqualified himself by his intemperateness. But I was totally wrong, because what I saw as disqualifying was actually rallying the Republican senators to his defense, both his own um, defense mm -hmm. of his character and also then Lindsey Graham chimed in at, with his defense of Justice Kavanaugh and accusing Democrats of a smear job and terrible mistreatment of him. And that managed to rally the Republican senators, to rally the Republican base, which had not been very excited about the Kavanaugh nomination previously. But now they saw him as a, as having been attacked by the liberals. And that was what helped get Brett Kavanaugh over the finish line. And so once again, the great liberal hopes centered on three names, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Jeff Flake. Really? I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> Lucy and the football, really? Was there any chance that any one of them was not going to vote for Kavanaugh? Well, one of them did not vote for Kavanaugh, Senator Murkowski right. of Alaska. And what she said was that he, while she had doubts about what had happened, that his unleashed partisan attacks during that hearing had convinced her that he basically didn't comply with the judicial code of conduct and couldn't be confirmed for that reason. But I think as to the other two, Senator Collins, who to her credit, I know this is hard for some people to hear, but <laughs> did do as diligent a job as any senator in reading Brett Kavanaugh, studying up on Brett Kavanaugh's court decisions, on his law review, on his record, talking to people about him. Um, she was inclined to vote for him from the from the start and uh, and was going to find ways, I think, to get there. I think that die was pretty well cast. Um, Jeff Flake woke up the morning after that um, hearing, having decided to vote for Brett Kavanaugh, then was convinced by his friend Chris Coons to go for an FBI investigation. But then he just didn't have it in him to insist on an FBI investigation that would be adequate would be, to the task. Right. So you say to, to, toward the end of the book that um, you've known Brett Kavanaugh quite a while, and you liked him, and you thought at the time not somebody you would appoint to the Supreme Court, but you would understand why Trump might appoint him and that he, you would hope that he would prove to be a reasonable member of the Supreme Court. So two questions to you. Um, back to what Christine Blasey Ford um, alleged. Did you believe her? Do you believe her? I do. do, you believe I, I do believe her. That's what happened? I, don't, you, I believe that that's what happened. I thought when Republican senators like Susan Collins said, oh, well, something terrible happened to Christine Blasey Ford, but she's just um, misremembering who it was. That just makes no sense. That's ridiculous. I thought Christine Blasey Ford um, was a credible witness. I did not, if you were going to make up a story like this, you would have made up a better story. You wouldn't have put somebody else in the room who would be able to dispute it, Mark Judge. Uh, the fact that other people don't 
remember that episode doesn't tell us that it didn't happen. It was not a searing moment for them other than Mark Judge, who had his own reasons, either from drunkenness or because he's not telling the truth, to not remember the episode. For the others, they had no reason to think that there was anything major going on. I, I think that all her motives were not to come forward. This has been a searing, life-changing event for her. It's been very difficult for her and her family. And I think she was not moved by partisan desires. In fact, she told me she worried in part that if she came forward and told this about Brett Kavanaugh, that the result would be a more conservative justice. And that was a reasonable worry on her part. So I believe her... I think the harder question is, does that mean you disbelieve him? And uh, my conclusion, just from talking to so many people who would have reason to assess this, is not that he lied outright about what happened, but that more likely, and perhaps I'm wrong about this, more likely it was just one more drunken high school night for Brett Kavanaugh. It wasn't a big deal. He either didn't remember it at you know the next morning when he woke up or forgot about it over time. And um, it's not so much that he's lying. It's just that it was a, just a life-changing, searing, terrible event for her and a no big deal drunk night for him. Believing her, do you believe he belongs on the Supreme Court? Well, I think it would have been a really, really difficult question for people like me if Judge Kavanaugh had come out and said, I hear her story. I did a lot of really stupid things and behaved in really stupid ways when I was in high school. I do not remember this, but if I ever did anything like that, I'm so sorry. I have tried my entire life to be supportive and promoting of women. And by the way, he has, he's named um, more female clerks. Uh, he had an all-female mm -hmm. set of clerks during his first term as a justice. More than half of his law clerks when he was an appeals court judge have been women. So if he had said that and kind of asked for mercy and understanding and the ability to move on from all the dumb things that some of us did in high school, I, I think that would have been a really difficult situation and one in which uh, I he didn't give us that choice I might have been inclined to say um, okay we need to have some space for forgiveness and some space for a statute of limitations in this world but that's not the hard choice that we were confronted with I thought in the end he made it a pretty easy choice because of how intemperate his behavior was at that hearing so finally um what does this reading the watching the hearing, participating in the earlier hearing with Anita Hill, writing this book, what does it say about the whole Supreme Court process? Does it reflect well on the court, on the Senate, on the country? What you come away with? Well, it does not reflect well on the Senate. Neither that one, uh, Hill Thomas, or this one. Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford, and uh, the increasing um, politicization, the way in which these Supreme Court nominations have turned into many political campaigns. I mean, I talk in the book about going back to the days of the Bork nomination, which was the first time 
um, we really had this kind of high-profile, high-decibel Supreme Court nomination. That one ended with the defeat of Bork, and by the way, the no ultimate nomination of Justice Kennedy. Um, back in that day, the notion that you would have a television ad was viewed as mm. shocking. Now mm. it's viewed as business as usual, Hard, yeah. and the question is how many millions of dollars you're putting behind it. That's just not a good situation and it's unhealthy for the court which is increasingly and much to the dismay of the chief justice and people like me um, viewed as a partisan institution. Ruth Marcus here with the Washington Post her book Supreme Ambition Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover by Simon & Schuster it's just out it's a great read very important read uh, and reminds us I think both of how important the Supreme Court is and maybe how um, we need to improve the process for how we choose people who get on the Supreme Court. Uh, a great holiday gift for yourself or someone that you love, available wherever in your local bookstore, local independent bookstore, hopefully, or wherever you buy books. Ruth Marcus, thanks so much for spending some time with thanks us. Thanks so much. It was really fun. And that's a wrap for today's podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for listening. And we remind you one more time, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod so you are a regular member. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Look for, search for the Bill Press Pod, and then click on subscribe, and you are in. And do yourself a favor by following me on Twitter, not only my frequent Twitter feeds, but then you'll be reminded of every new podcast coming up. Follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. Over and out for now. Have a great, great, happy holiday, folks. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod, and we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.